that true success can never be measured on the basis of the accumulation of the things that we possess. That he said that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that they possess. That at the end of the day, we are not a success by even how much we achieve or whatever notoriety we may temporarily be given. That at the end of the day, Jesus said our success can be measured by essentially a twofold criteria. One, how did we do loving God? And two, how did we do loving others? Loving God and loving people. Two greatest things we can ever do. We're going to talk about that. That's where we left off last week. I want to go ahead and pray. Though. I want to pray over this moment that we're about to share. And I thank you, Lord. I love you. I pray for your blessing. I thank you for everyone who is here, who, who has chosen to be here in your house at this moment. And I just, you know what I ask, Lord? I, I ask that each one of us would just give you the gift of focused heart, of a mind that is um, listening for your voice and your wisdom. And I pray that part of what would be happening is that it would be the generation of a kind of early momentum in this year for us around what it means to, to live out our faith in, in real tangible ways, especially as it connects with other people. So I'm asking you for, for relational growth. I, I'm praying that for growth of our ability to, to represent your heart better with the people we love sometimes people we don't know, but really a lot with people we also know and love and are around all the time. I really pray for that. Pray for that for myself as well. In Jesus' name, amen, God. All right, I want to I pick back up. Again, I mentioned that there was this uh, passage that we left off with last week in which Jesus talks about what real success looks like. And uh, I want to go back to the, the 12th chapter of Mark. This, this came up a lot in the Gospels because there was kind of an understood a way of, uh, that Jesus described the law's summary. He talked about the law of Moses being essentially combined into two predominant elements. This was not, he was not the only one saying this, but the way he presented it was sort of unique. But the, the essential combination that Jesus makes is from two great teachings in the Older Testament, which were the only scripture of their day. The, the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about loving God with all of your heart, the oneness of God, and loving him with all of your heart. And then the book of Leviticus, it talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus combined those two, and others were discussing that as well. Let's read Mark 12, though. We'll, we'll kind of sit with this, because there's two kind of interesting passages that both explain some in, an incident that occurred. They're different incidents, but they have a lot in common, and they teach us something. So it says, one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. Jesus was having an exchange with the religious teachers and scholars and some of the members of what, a party that was known as the Sad, Sadducees, and, they, and the Pharisees were there as well. And they were having this very high-level discussion around things like the resurrection, and Jesus was exchanging with them, and this man and a large group of people had gathered around them to hear it and to listen, and was watching and was intrigued by what was happening. This man was listening. He was not just anyone. He was a trained religious uh, lawyer. We would call him a scribe, a teacher of his day. Um, he realized that Jesus had answered well. He was very impressed with what he was hearing. 
And then he asked him a question. He says, may I ask you a question? He says, of all the commandments, which is, how would you, of everything that we have been taught, how would you render the most supreme thing that we are to do? How, how do you see this? How would you distill it down? Was Jesus going to give some very different answer, or was he going to wrestle with it and describe it? This was in a, in a way that was more familiar. The, Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. The greatest thing you can ever do is this. Listen, O Israel, that is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And he said the second is equally as important, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And as the teacher, the scribe, listened, and he was considering what Jesus was saying and how he had distilled it down to something that he clearly understood and agreed with, he said, he said, well said, teacher. Well said. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and there is no other. And I know that it is important to love him with all of my heart and with all of my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And then he added this. I know this is so important. He says, this is more important even than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices that are required in the law. I know that this is what God wants more than anything else. To which Jesus, very impressed with his response, said this. Realizing how much he really got it and understood. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, you, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's a fascinating statement and response on the part of Jesus. Because Jesus actually was impressed and considered what he said at the close of the conversation and what it implied. And it was as if he, and if I may put it this way, is as if Jesus gave him both a compliment and at the same time, it's a, it, was, it was a, honestly, it was a, such a brilliant statement because he simultaneously affirmed him and complimented him. At the same time, it was a humbling assessment as well. It was as if Jesus said to him, you, you, my friend, are precisely right, and now there is only one more step for you to take. For you are not far means you are near, but it also means you are not there yet. And what was that step? It's your willingness to accept me. How do we know that? It's almost like what Jesus was saying is, the kingdom of God, you, you are not far from the kingdom. It's like he was saying, the king of the kingdom has come and is even now looking at you. And you are now hearing his words. The king of the kingdom is before you. What will you do with him? You are so close. Open your heart to the new thing God is doing, for the king has come. Powerful moment. Now, contrast this with what occurred in the book of Luke, was recorded in the book of Luke. Another very similar exchange, but a little bit different. Look at it with me. Luke 10, verse 25 through 29. Here's a different scenario. A lot of similarities, but different. See if you can see the differences. Behold, there was a certain lawyer who stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? How do you describe it? How do you understand it? And so he answered and he said, a very similar answer. You shall love, I, this is how I see it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
waiting for Jesus' reply, and it was this. You have, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, look at this. He, wanting to justify himself, asked this. Well, who is my neighbor? Now, that, do you see the two differences here? In Mark's account, Jesus summarizes the law by referring to loving God and loving others in response to a question. And then he is, then, and then when he summarizes it, the person who asked the question says, yes, you're absolutely right, and agrees with the question, and agrees with Jesus' statement, and then repeats it, in a sense, echoes what Jesus says. But in this situation, right, it's a little bit different because here it is the lawyer who summarizes the law in, res in response to Jesus. Jesus. He asks Jesus, what shall I do? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you, what's your understanding of the law? What do you think? How do you understand it? The lawyer responds with the quotation, love God, love others. Jesus says, you're, wrong, you're right on it. Do it and you shall live. In a sense, he echoes him. And, and as you look at this, there's, there's really another, there's, there's, there's a difference in, in the one because he adds on the front one, he says, you're not far from the kingdom. But in the other, he says, nothing bare, basically. He just kind of lets it settle in. I, I think it's, it had to do, at least in part, if you look at Luke 10, 25 there, the second man who came to Jesus, I think at least in part, the reason Jesus responded the way he did was because of what is stated in that 25th verse. Look what it says here. A lawyer stood up and tested him. We're immediately told that this was in front of a lot of people. The very posture itself was somewhat confrontational. He stood up, and, he, and the older version says, they put him to the test. There was, a, there was, a, there was a implied that at best the question was being given with mixed motives, that at worst it was designed and intended to trap Jesus in some kind of a contradiction. He was hoping to catch him. It was kind of a rhetorical snare. He was hoping to get him to have some type of a, maybe a... a, a inaccurate or controversial response. So we're told that when he stood up, and I think that was the stance of confidence. I think it was a clear statement that he was saying, basically, I am prepared to parry with you right now on this theological ground. At least that's, you know, you know how I would almost say it? It's almost like when he got up in front of everybody and said, I have a question for you. How do you, how do you achieve eternal life? That he was basically saying is, I want you to show me what you got. It reminds me of a movie that I saw when I was years ago. It kind of at least illustrates the point. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. I'll do my best with it. The movie was an old Western, now it's old, called The Outlaw Josie Wales. Clint Eastwood plays, a much younger Clint Eastwood plays Josie Wales. He's a man whose wife and his son were murdered. He's on the run. He's a Civil War veteran. He's got a bounty on his head. He's a man who's also exceptionally fast with a gun. And in one scene I've never tired of or forgotten, a brash young gunslinger walks into a dimly lit, kind of like bar or saloon. He's in the corner, Wales, just kind of on his way through, but he's being tracked down, he's being hunted. The young gunslinger who's been hunting him because he knows he has a bounty on his head walks in and says, Wales, I'm looking for you. Wales. Wales looks at him after he's called out and essentially says, son, you don't have to do this. The young, brash 
gunslinger who's cocky, but now a little bit faltering, just a little bit in his bravado, says, well, a man's got to make a living. To which Wales replies, dying ain't much of a living. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying that if your purpose is to overtake Jesus in a theological debate, you're not coming out a winner. He's got you. And so when this guy walks up and says, hey, I want, I want to challenge you on your grounds of what eternal life is, and he's expecting Jesus to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, and Jesus basically comes at him in a way that he was not prepared for. See, don't go with, into, into a confrontation with Jesus over human nature and over the things of God unless you're, unless you're prepared to be utterly exposed. Because look what, look what happens here. When the confident lawyer stands up and publicly asks Jesus the question, he, he almost, it's almost like the way it's described. He's almost caught off guard by the response of Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he doesn't answer the question directly. He does what he often did. When he says, what shall I do? And again, to inherit eternal life. Tell me what your answer is when he gets that. It was designed to test Jesus. The motives were clear in front of everyone. When he does it, it, he's not prepared for Jesus' response, which was a question. He says, well, what is written in the law? What, do you, what, do you, what is written? What is your um, reading of it? Which is, you know, he's basically saying this. You know the law of Moses. That's your profession. You're, a, you're an expert. That's your line of work. You tell me. Well, and although initially caught off guard by Jesus's Return, the lawyer rallies and smoothly answers the question with concise precision. To which Jesus replied in verse 28, you've answered correctly, you've answered rightly. This is all you have to do. If you do this, you will live. And perhaps the lawyer is waiting for Jesus to say more. Well, that all you, I know that. You have anything more to say? Jesus says nothing. He just stops. No, no argument, no exchange. And you got the answer already. What do, you have, what do you want to have a discussion about it? Do it. Do it. Do what you say. And all will be well with you. Everybody's looking. Everybody's listening. You know why we know he starts to feel uncomfortable? Because look what it says. It says that he, wanting to what, we're told? Justify himself. Ask the question. Who... Who is my neighbor? By which he meant, think about it. Well, come on now. What is the limit of my love? How do I mark it? Who, who's included in that? Who really is my neighbor? We, you answer that one for me. You know, and, and you got to remember, now, on one way, you could say that maybe he was trying to pull Jesus in one of the great arguments of the day. Because there was a lot of discussion at this time about who are we responsible to love? People were talking about this all the time. In other words, who is really my neighbor? For many of the people of Jesus' day, especially the, the, teachers, the Jewish teachers themselves and the religious leaders, there, are, there was a huge group that believed only the righteous of our own people are truly our neighbor. And that is the, that is the group that we are required to love. Everybody else, that's no. I'm going to say, well, what, about the, what about the Samaritans? They're, they're kind of like different, but they have some similarities. Are we required to love, him, love them? Most people would say, no, you're not. They're not your neighbor. They're kind of like outsiders. They've got a warped perspective. Others would say, what about the Romans? Are we required to love them? Are they our neighbor? Do they count? Am I to love them? The, the, you talking about the Romans who've come into our land, who subjugated us as a people, 
who require us to pay taxes to Rome, who have the audacity to, to compel us on a whim to pick up a package for them and to carry it a mile. Later on, Jesus is going to say, when they say to carry it one, carry it and then volunteer to carry it two. When they hit you on the cheek, turn the other and say, do you want this one too? It was intense what Jesus would say. He was saying, break that spirit of resentment. Do what you have to and then choose out of love to do the next. Powerful. That's a whole other teaching. That's a whole other teaching. But the wrong, what, what is my requirement? Even in Jesus' own circle, the disciples, he had zealots. He had, he had, he had radicals in there. One of them, had people who had desire to see Rome physically rebelled against in a, in a like, you know, revolutionary way, a, a guerrilla warfare. And that was going on during that time as well. And many people were disappointed in Jesus because they felt that he should have used his power to liberate Israel, if he was truly Messiah, from the Roman bondage. And when he didn't do it the way they wanted it done, he was a disappointment. But do, going back, do am I supposed to love the Roman? Are they my neighbor? Them, them? What about others would say, no, no. What if, and then others would say, well, am I, is, is, the, is the outcast and the immoral person really my sinner in the public? Are they my the sinner who, who chooses to live an immoral life that's clearly contrary to God's law, am I required to love them as a neighbor? What about, what about the publican, the, 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 the one who's betrayed his own people? He's collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. That's what Matthew was, by the way, when Jesus called him. A despised tax collector. He was more than just that. He was actually an overseer, a chief publican. Those people, you don't tell me I'm supposed to love guys like that. No way, that's not my neighbor. He chose his way. Who is my neighbor? Great question. Do you know what that sets the table for? One of the great teachings of Jesus of all time. One of the most memorable teachings that Jesus ever gives occurs as a response to that question. It's the story that we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. It's the story that we've come to know. It's even worked its way into Western vernacular. It's the story we've come to know and describe as the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan was a response to the question that was asked out of a man wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Because perhaps his own conscience was beginning to feel some condemnation. It was a great question. Now, how do we take that and work it through in our own, heart, in our own hearts and our own lives as we move into this new year? This is where I want to sit with in the time that we have left. And I'll put a couple things on the board and just let it, let it be. First thing I want to suggest is that to say that we love God and, and not to have it show up in kindness and in respect to other people is a disconnect, right? And as they've already put up, that loving others cannot save us, right? Because we can't, we, that's what we need a savior. But not loving others will surely condemn us. This is really important for us to understand what Jesus taught us. He never suggested that we could ever be really good enough to earn God's favor. In other words, if I'm a good person, if I'm a good person, whatever that is, by the way, I mean, is there like a spot where someone says, now I'm a good person? I'm, I'm kind of joking, I'm kind of not. Like, do, is there a place where, if, if, the, if, the, if the basis is, if, I, if you're a good person, you'll, just going back to the question, how do I know I have eternal life? How do I know I'm right with God? How do I know I'll be accepted? How do I know I'm going to heaven? 
If the answer is, well, it, just be a good person, then the, then the question that would be posed is, well, what is that? Well, you know, you, you got to kind of do this and that. But Jesus never said that. He never said that if you want to get to be with me, then all you have to do is just kind of be a good person. And then you kind of figure out what that is, and then you'll be okay. You know, be loving, be kind, be giving, whatever. He never said that. You know why? He always said that there is no one truly good but God. In fact, in Romans 3.23, I just put this up. It's stated implicitly that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is, we've all missed the mark at some level. That There are contradictions in every one of us. There is the ability to do things contrary to God. Not only is there the ability to hurt um, and to diminish and to speak out of turn and to act extraordinarily selfishly, um, not only is that capacity in us, it's something we experientially do. Uh, the Bible is true. It says there's not one person. If you, if you base goodness as God defines it, there's nobody who's good enough, which is what Jesus said is precisely why he came. You know, when I was, when I was just a, a young Christian, I was a young follower of Jesus. I was reminded that there is none. Someone said, there's none good, no one but God. And they said that Jesus has come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? And I remember learning a song. It was, it was like, it, it was a very easy song. It was like, he paid a debt he did not owe. It was, one of the, it was at that very innocent time in my life with Jesus when, I, when a little chorus could mean so much to me. He, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone just to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. It's so simple. I still remember it, you know. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone just to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. I remember that as a boy. <laughs> I mean, still with me, because I'll never be, look, you know why? You can't earn a gift, you can only receive it. I'm never good enough for Jesus or God. I receive his gift. And then, in response, because look what the Bible says, in Corinthians it says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we may be made righteous, the righteousness of God. We may be right in God's eyes. He paid the price. I'll show you one more verse. I know we're not going to get it all. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows, demonstrates his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, imperfect, not always good, Christ died for us. He did it. That's so good. Look, I look at that and I say, thank you, Lord. I understand conclusively that my own goodness can never save you. That's why I need a savior. But can you hear me? I'm saved by faith. But listen, you know what the Bible also teaches? That faith in our Savior, without works, to say we love God, and then not ever have it show up in our relationship, is like saying that it's just empty. Because faith without works is empty and dead. Because love works. It's got to show up. It, it's got to show up. That's what, that's what Christian love does. It's not just about, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then, then, then but I could care less about people. That doesn't, that's not how it works. That's not the way the Master taught us. Right? He gave everything for others. It, there's a, there's got to be a... You know how much damage is done 
by people who, who claim to love God, and then inside, in their critical relationships, it, it doesn't show up at all, or it's so brutal in there. Just leaves, you know, how many people have turned away from Jesus because publicly there was a confession of love for God, but in the, in the trenches, behind the doors, when it really needed to be lived out, not perfectly, but honestly, graciously, with humility and genuineness, there wasn't there. And how many of us correspondingly have been blessed because there were people who we saw model that. They were not perfect, but they genuinely loved God and were pretty authentic in their faith. That made a huge difference. And it still does. And so I'm going to say that, that we are, to say that we, you know, if we just say we, you love God without a corresponding love for people and others, then it's like just having one pillar when two are required to hold it up. I'll take it a step further. How are we to love our neighbors? How are we to love other people? What did Jesus teach us to? That we are to love others as ourselves. Well, this is huge, isn't it? Because some people say, well, I don't know if I really love myself. That presupposes that I do have, like, how can I love someone else when I don't even know if I really love myself? And I'm not talking about, like, pride self-centered love, the stuff that, that our culture preaches at us all the time about you got to take care of yourself, you know, all that. No, I'm talking about like a lot of times God wants to say he really loves us. And some of us have deep trust injuries. And we sometimes question that. We might, we might feel like, you know, I've talked to people sometimes and I say to them, the Lord loves you. And as I'm talking to them, I can hear, I can see it in their eyes. But I'm no good. Or I have other stuff going on. I really don't think I... It just, it's like the, the love of God's coming in, and then it, it's like it, there's so many cracks in there. It's like it just kind of flows out. It's a hard time to hold it. It's like when I say, you know what? You are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. If you open your heart to him, he loves you. He'll say the words. Some of us say, well, I've never had those words said to me. He's saying them. But when we love, when the love of God penetrates our life and we allow it in and we are able to allow his grace to give us enough of a container to, to accommodate it, what it means is then we can love others even as we desire to be loved. The, what Jesus was saying is partly at least, just like you and I, each of us has a desire. Look, how many of us here don't want to be treated kindly? How many of us here want to be respected? How many of us here, you know, we would say, oh, I prefer being, you know, humiliated and cursed at and deprived. No, come on, to being loved, to being accepted, to being forgiven, to, being, to be, have warmth, to have blessing. Do you know what, that's what Jesus is saying. The same thing, honestly, at your core that you desire for yourself, what was he saying? Give that to someone else. That sounds so, that's what he's saying. It, it's, be, it, it's, it's beautiful, it's what he's drilling into. And this, of course, then leads to the qualifier, right? Which is this, well, if that's true, then who is my neighbor? It's the great question. Regardless of his motive, the question was asked, who is my neighbor? By which he meant, what is the scope, what is the limit of my love to be? Okay, I know how I'm supposed to love people. It's the same way that I want to be loved, really. I know that I'm never going to be good enough that I need a savior, but at the same time, when I really love God, it's going to show up in my relationships with people. But then that does really invite us to the question. And I actually think it's a pretty good question. Well, what is the extent of my love supposed to be? And where's the emphasis supposed to be? Where should I start with that? I put the quote in the handout for a reason, and I didn't say who it was by, 
but I'd like us to look at it together because the third point is this. Here's the suggestion, here's this, <laughs> the exhortation, here's the consideration that love, as Jesus is talking about it, needs to start with our closest circles. In order for love to be genuine, it has to be above all a love for our neighbor. We must love those who are nearest to us in our own family. From there, love spreads towards whoever may need us. It's easy to love those who live far away. It's not always easy to love those who live right next to us. It's easier to offer, offer a dish of rice to meet the hunger of a needy person than to comfort the loneliness and the anguish of someone in our own home who does not feel loved. I want you to go and find the poor in your homes. Above all, your love has to start there. And I want you to be, I love this phrase, the good news to those around you. I want you to be concerned about your next door neighbor. Do you know who your neighbor is? Now, the, the reason this has such power in it is because it was written by someone who gave every part of their life to serving the needs of those far away and totally outcast. This was said by Mother Teresa. And I love it because it's so in line with what Jesus reminded us of that it's not an either or, it's a both and, but it's got to, what she was saying is, don't, don't forget that where the love of Jesus needs to show up firstly is in your own key relationships. It says, don't, don't be under any illusion that somehow that, that, that those don't matter as much. It matters a whole lot. That's also what Jesus taught us. And you know what? How do we talk to people we love? What's our, what's our, oh, so how? So because now we know each other better, I'm free to diminish you in ways that I would never do to someone that I didn't know, that I wasn't mad at, or I work with. I wouldn't say that. But I could say it to you, because you made me mad. You hurt me. You shouldn't do that. So this is the way I said it. It's very real, all right? Others of us, God, you know what God's trying to do for some of us? He's trying to, he's trying to, um, so well, this is the way my family talks. That's why I was raised. This is how I, because when the heat is on, so I drop into. You hurt me, I hurt you back. That's how escalation occurs. That's how deep wounds occur. That's how walls get built. That is not the way of the Lord. That is not the way of the Lord. One of the goals that some of us should be having this year is to let the love of God so penetrate our lives that it begins to show up in relational patterns. And I'm talking about the way we talk. And when we do step across lines that we forgive, and when we, for, we ask for forgiveness, and we, and we sincerely do. And then for those of us, forgive even as we want to be forgiven. Some of us are not, we're really good at not stepping over lines, but we're not too good at forgiving. We say, I forgive, but then we hold it and we keep it and we nurture it and we let it sit and let it define us. And then this also is, because who here among us will not need the forgiveness of Jesus? Who does not need the, Jesus said, if you want to be forgiven by God, then you need to forgive others. To me, love also shows up. Love shows up. Love for my neighbor and my closest circles shows up sometimes in just my willingness to commit to a life that is not selfish. Because there's always pressure to quit, take the easy path, only take care of myself. It's what I want. It's my happiness that matters. Who cares? It's not that I don't care. It's just that other people may get hurt. Okay. I can't do that. It's just about I got to take care of me. That is not the type of love the love that Jesus modeled for ourselves was extraordinarily sacrificial. He, did, he would later say, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I really don't want, but you know what? I'm going through this. I will go. 
And he doesn't quit. He doesn't quit on us. He doesn't quit on, he doesn't quit on his commitment. He follows through. And because he does, all the rest of us are blessed. And how many times does the Lord really say, as you, you say you love me, let that show up in the way in which you honor the commitments of love that you have made one to another. Let that show up in the way you forgive and are forgiven. Let show up in your way you talk, the way we honor to provide for the blessing of others, the way in which we give of ourselves. It's not just about me. It's just about me. I'll take care of myself. I'll run away when I don't feel like it anymore, whatever that is. But in life, our real blessing comes when people, people hold the line, even sometimes when it costs them something because they love us. This is the, way, this is the best way. May the Lord teach us his ways. Loving needs to show up in our key relationships and then work its way out. This also is the will of God for our lives. May he give us grace to be faithful, to love the people he's given us, to love them well. And we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. Lord, Lord, I just thank you. I, I love you also. I praise you. What a blessing to be able to sit with your words and to consider them. Your principles are good, righteous altogether, Lord. And I just pray that there will be a, a kind of building momentum of growth in our lives. Because there's not a one of us here, Lord, that doesn't need some additional formation. But a lot of times that, that outward expression of love that shows up in our relationships is connected to an, a willingness to grow internally in our love with you. And that sometimes is a learning process. I just invite you, wherever we are, men or women, Lord, whatever we are in our journey with you, with you a long time, just starting out, some not even quite there yet, but on our way. You know everything, God. Pray to keep working our lives. And I ask for you to bless the closing song, because it's, it's just a, like a prayer that, and behind what we've shared. And I ask this, Lord, uh, for this, this year to come, that you would just be with us, grow us, I'm reminded, Lord, that change is inevitable, Lord, but growth is optional. May we be a people committed to growing. I ask this, Lord, for your blessing. Bless our time of giving. Bless this closing song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.